0: Now the real question is does this thing work with whispering? Can you hear at the back if I do it like this? If I'm reduced to that at the end. Yeah. Okay. I hope it doesn't come to that thing. When I lost my voice as a teacher, what tended to happen was the class always got very quiet and well behaved, so So there you are. Um, This sermon comes in three parts. Perhaps we could have slide number one. Uh, I may have been a teacher once, but there are certain things that I am pretty useless at. and They are anything to do with electronic technology. Uh, But we have amazingly, apparently, got all the slides I want. So three parts are fairly predictable. What is it Paul's on about in this letter? And, sorry, no, I can't read quite that distance, I'll, um, I'll turn around. What is it that Paul's on about in this letter? And what does he mean on about for it to make sense, to say what he does in this passage? Okay, or context, if you like. Why does he go on about this sort of stuff? Secondly The passage itself. What's he actually going on about in the passage? And thirdly, so what? Who cares? What difference does it make? I'll try and make it clear when we get to each changeover section. Okay, thanks. Chapter 1 makes a very big thing about Jesus as Christ or Messiah. Same thing, depends which translation you're using. By the way, please, I'm conscious, I'm moving a bit away from the microphone occasionally. If you can't hear, please wave arms around, okay? I I don't usually have a problem with being audible, but you'll need to respond on this one if need be. Okay. So, Jesus as Christ or Messiah, big thing in chapter 1 of Colossians. And chapter 2 doesn't exactly forget about him either. (coughs) So, why does Paul go on about him? Now, you may think, that's a stupid question. This is the Bible. What do you expect the Bible to go on about? Well, Jesus, obviously. Ah, but I don't suppose Paul had a clue that centuries or even millennia later... (coughs) people would treat his writing the way he thought of Genesis, Isaiah and so on. He just thought he would write a major speech to be delivered to the Christians in Colossi. Yes, you may say, but he always goes on about Jesus, doesn't he? Yes, he does. But he doesn't always take up this much papyrus space on the subject. See 1 and 2 Corinthians, for example. There's plenty on Jesus there, but much lower proportion. And he certainly doesn't always lay it on so thick about the greatness and importance of Jesus or in such flowery rhetorical language as he does in this letter. So it's a fair question. What's the issue in Colossae that makes it seem so important to Paul to say what he does? Now it makes a big difference which commentary you you, you read. One way of thinking, perhaps an older one, saw pagan Greek influences on the Christians in Colossae. Another sees Jewish ones. In chapter 2 verse 8, yes I'm going to trespass on last week's passage a bit, Uh, can't really help that I think. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul takes a swipe at philosophy and empty deceit. That's not, I think, the NIV translation. I forget which one. The only philosophy on offer, surely, was Greek philosophy. Nobody else did philosophy. Who ever heard of Jewish philosophy? The Romans didn't really want to know about it a great deal either. (coughs) Then our passage in verse 18, he has a go at worship of angels. And in verse 23, severe treatment of the body. Certain kinds of Greek philosophy encouraged denial of the body. And surely Jews would never worship angels. So maybe it looks as if he's having a go of pagan influences, and particularly Greek philosophy. And there are the three points I just made up on the screen. It's so good to have somebody on the projection who is much wider awake during a sermon than ever I would be if I had that job to do thanks um, I'll keep you to that uh, but there you've got it. I thought that, that's a, a bit of a summary of three points as to why people might think this was aimed at a pagan target now I studied Greek philosophy I used to teach it and I'm rather keen on this stuff And many times I've heard preachers using verse 8 to put the boot into philosophy, and I felt distinctly got at. But I'm now convinced that's not what Paul is on about at all, and for several reasons. For the first one, think back to my original question. Why is it so important for Paul to make such an issue of Jesus? Who wants to talk Jesus down? Pagans couldn't care less. Tell them there's a new God called Jesus and he is very special. Yeah, fine. Whatever floats your boat. But Jews... Who deny that Jesus is the Messiah? That's another matter. A Jewish target makes sense of how Paul presents Jesus. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom all things in heaven and on earth were created, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Well, precisely. Precisely. Sounds like the God of Israel, doesn't it? And secondly, his talk about circumcision and baptism in verses 11 to 13 suggests a Jewish target. And so do regulations about food and drink, festivals, New Moons and Sabbaths in verse 16. (coughs) So, what about the arguments... Um, By the way, for the projection, I've messed this one up because I've put the next two slides the wrong way round. We'll see them both in a few minutes, okay? Sorry about that. It's my fault. Um, So what about the arguments for a pagan target, the ones that you've had up there? Are we out to the one about worship of angels and severe treatment of the body when we're actually looking at tonight's passage itself? Yes, I think they're perfectly relevant to a Jewish target. But the philosophy bit, isn't that pretty clear? Well, no. If you had asked an average pagan what sort of thing the Christian movement was, the obvious answer would be a philosophy. At least, if you were talking to them in Greek... And that answer would be the Greek word, philosophia. Thanks. Thanks very much. I'll try not to send it flying. Um, There's no word for religion in Greek. All Latin. It's not a category people had in mind. So Christianity would be a philosophia in Greek. And Jewish writers actually used the Greek word philosophia to describe the Jewish religion. Okay, so I think it is perfectly reasonable not to take philosophy to be the kind of subject that I used to teach in school, that I had to study at university. So what sort of philosophy was Paul attacking in verse (coughs) 8? The answer comes in a joke yes Paul tells a joke but it's a pun and puns only work in their original language so I'll have to explain it, explain it and explaining jokes kills them stone dead of course in verse 8 he says don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy etc Now, there are plenty of ways of saying take captive in Greek. And Paul here chooses a very rare word for it. Sulagogain. Yes, the Greek word matters. Sulagogain. That sounds rather like the word for synagogue. One letter different. And Greek speakers may well have heard the letter L as sounding more like an N than we do. Sulagorgain, so, It's Slight difference to the ending. That's not the ending isn't important. It's the L and the end. The N. So Paul is Paul is saying, Don't let anyone synagogue you by philosophy or religion. Or in other words, don't get brainwashed by your local synagogue. You may think it's a silly little point. Everyone says it is a silly little point. But I think it's a giveaway clue. It's only it, it why use this bizarre word unless you want to exploit this the strangeness of this word, the fact that it sounds so close to the word for synagogue. He then goes on to reinterpret circumcision, the physical sign that you, if you're a male, were a member of the Jewish people, as circumcision by Christ, a metaphor for being a member of the community of Christ, and symbolised by baptism. So, Christ has defeated or replaced all sorts of things or beings, two of them distinctly Jewish, the condemnation that comes from the law, and physical circumcision as a sign of membership of God's people. Can we have slide number three now? Lovely. Okay. Um, So, I've got a minute somewhere The... um, are they less pagan than they seem I'm suggesting first of all I, I've got put down the um, <coughs> three problems with the uh, three reasons why each of these might be thought to be aimed at a pagan target the Greek word "philosophia" can mean religious sect worship of angels may not mean what you think wait for this and Jews could give the body a hard time as well. Wait for that one as well. Both of them will come when we get to them in our passage. And slide four is the positive reasons why these should be taken to be Jewish targets. Jews would be much more interested (laughs) in talking Jesus down. Okay. He refers to circumcision and baptism. Jewish phenomena, not pagan ones only Jews have Sabbaths food and drink restrictions are much more likely to be Jewish yeah, there were Pythagoreans they didn't eat meat or beans either but um, no Jews much more likely and of course, Paul's little joke Um, as a final reason for taking it to be a Jewish um, target he's having a go at pity actually because I'd have found it much easier to do part three of this sermon if it had been the other way around <laughs> the practical application however however Let's go on to part two now, the start of tonight's passage. And slide five gives us the first couple of verses. Both pagans and Jews had religious festivals and observance of new moons, but only Jews, of course, had Sabbaths. When Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by these things, He probably means, don't let anyone use these things, how you observe them or not, as the case may be, to tell you whether you are or are not a member of God's people. They were only a shadow of what was to come. The reality is Christ. Funnily enough, this shadow reality language is lifted from, of all things, Greek philosophy. It's Greek philosophical jargon. Not the sort of newly expect Paul to do in his core being with Greek philosophy. I just thought I'd better make sure though, and check up verse 17 in the Greek. And I was in for a surprise. It seemed to say something completely different from the NIV translation. That's what's on the screen at the moment, I hope. No, the original. Thanks. Right. We'll go on to the next one. In just a moment. Um, <clears throat> Who isn't Greek translated literally? These are a shadow of future things. The body of Christ. I don't suppose you were expecting that, and oh, I certainly wasn't. Can we have the next? The next one. The next one gives us both versions. The next slide gives us both versions. Um, There you are. So the original version I've put in brackets. The reality, however, is found in Christ. But the literal translation of the Greek is just the body of Christ. Weird, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with the NIV translation here. Body, in Greek can mean reality or substance, so the reality or the substance is that of Christ. Okay, fine. There's also quite a bit that isn't right with the NIV translation, and that is not a criticism. I can't imagine other translations doing much better. That's just the way language is. The Italians have a nice pun for it. Traduttore, traditore. A traduttore, a translator, is a traditore, a betrayer. If you translate, you betray. No option. Okay? When you read a translation, you are not reading exactly the same thing. Tough. Nothing can be done about it. So, in addition to the NIV, he could perhaps add a suggestion that the future reality is, yeah, the body of Christ. Yes, Paul's playing games with language again, isn't he? Is there any point in finding clever double meanings here? Wait a verse or two. Let's go on to the next couple of verses, please. In verse 19, the body of Christ as the church and its members. Look at that again just in a moment. But first, the worship of angels. I'll erased that one before, i I'd come back to it. It's ambiguous. The phrase, the worship of angels, is ambiguous. It's rather like the eating of children. In one sense, the eating of children is something that you really shouldn't do. in another sense, it's something that has to happen. It may be messy, but they have to do it. Okay? Now, it depends on whether they're doing it, or whether you're doing it to them. The same phrase can equally have both meanings. Same with worship of angels. So, if you attempted, as I suspect many of us were, to take the worship of angels, meaning worshipping, people worshipping angels, That doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Jews would never worship angels. Pagans probably couldn't care less about angels anyway. But the people causing the trouble, therefore, probably have not been worshipping angels. Most likely, they've been going on about their wonderful spiritual experiences. Visions of angels worshipping. Perhaps joining the angels in their worship. As I was saying to the angel Gabriel only the other day, you imagine the kind of thing, this is not a must-have item of spirituality that they have and you haven't. It actually, as you can see in this passage, cuts them off from Christ and therefore from his body. Paul talks about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians, his great concern is with unity in the church and special honour being shown to those members who get least honour in this world. That's not his first concern at this point. So it certainly comes up later. I mean, you know, don't imagine that when in chapter 3 he talks about wives submitting to husbands, slaves to masters, and children to parents. He's telling low-status people to know your place. He's being much more subtle and subversive, I think, than you probably imagine. And even the last half chapter in the letter, I started thinking what to say about that in three weeks' time. You know, the say hello to clippers from me kind of stuff. It's all about links between members of the body. Here though, in chapter 2, he's concerned about keeping the link with Christ, the head of the body. And his message is, don't let spirituality sideline Jesus. And now, the last... few verses please I'll be really brief on this last section he's against applying to Christians a range of Jewish purity regulations things not to eat things not to touch because they're unclean he even lumps these things together with the elemental spiritual forces of this world over which he said Christ had triumphed on the cross back in verses 14 and 15 last week's passage To me, personally, the phrase harsh treatment of the body in verse 23 could describe more or less any restriction on diet. But I guess that's not quite what's meant here. Most likely, it refers to certain forms of fasting. What forms, we don't know, but some forms of fasting are a lot more negative than others, I guess. Whatever it means, it's in the context of Jewish restrictions which would have kept them clearly separate from their pagan neighbours and separate in the eyes of their pagan neighbours and probably made them feel pretty good about themselves. We're Jews. We're righteous. We keep the law in its detail. (coughs) And the thought that occurs to me at this point is that we're not a million miles from some of Jesus' comments on the Pharisees, are we? Okay, end of passage. Sort of. Just a thought, though. It's been very practical. Don't be fooled by X, Y, and Z. But behind it all, as usual with Paul, is theology. And the theology is about Jesus. And as so often with Paul... It's about Jesus in relation to the Jewish faith, the Old Testament. It's not spelt out, though. Two of the great pillars of the Jewish faith are Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and Temple, the Word of God and the dwelling place of God among His people. Jesus seems to have replaced or fulfilled them both. When you talk about the relationship between Christians and Jews and the law and so on, it's the, it's a, a minefield, and I'm probably not very good at the right politically correct theological language, but something like that. Jesus is the reality of all substance which the shadows of Jewish regulations pointed in verse 17 they seem to be at least human interpretations of the Torah perhaps the Torah itself hard to be sure no, I think the scholars are a bit divided and the temple was where God was present among his people and the new temple is the body of Christ. Jesus described his own body as a temple, and Paul talks to early churches as though they are that same body, that same temple. And this fits well with so much about Jesus in the Gospels. I think of Matthew starting off chapter 1 with Emmanuel, God with us. And finishing chapter 28 with the risen Jesus talking to his disciples on the mountain. I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, just a little sort of theological thought on this passage. It's not a very theological passage on the face of it, but two bits of of theology, about how Paul's theology relates to the Old Testament and to Jesus. Okay, so what? Well, who cares? It's a practical difference it makes? Preachers are supposed to do practical application of scripture. And I'm finding it very difficult indeed. Difficult because it's too easy Too easy, because the obvious-looking point fits all too nicely into what the spirit of our age wants to believe. It's all too easy to tell people that we shouldn't allow ourselves to get bogged down in petty religious rules and regulations. And among Christians, if we say that Paul, like Jesus, is against a legalistic approach, we'll get wise nods. Or depending on what sort of church we're in. Easy amens and hallelujahs. We're all against legalism, aren't we? I'd actually quite like to ban the word. Not because I'm in favour of legalism, but because I think the word itself is fairly meaningless. We all need rules and laws, if they're good ones, but not if they're bad. We're all against bad rules, and even the misuse of good ones. If I'm in France, and I'm driving off from somewhere, when my wife points out to me that I'm on the left-hand side of the road, I don't accuse her of giving in to French petty legalism. She may have a point. It happens about once every trip to France, I think. Um, Learning a subject. You cannot learn any subject without having to learn a whole lot of rules. Different kind of rules, from motoring rules. The ideal, of course, is normally to make them so much part of you that you don't have to stop and think about them. But rules, you can't operate without them. Some of them may be fairly petty as well, but okay. Some rules are more important than others. Or again, perhaps, some people are much more in need of rules in their thinking and living than others are. It really wouldn't do, for example, to say to anybody on the autistic spectrum, even on the fringe of the autistic spectrum, you need to go out of your dependence on rules. You haven't got much choice. That's what it's like. Or a completely different example again. you call petty regulations because they interfere with your ability to do things your way may be very important for me because they protect me from your power and your greed okay so many different rules, laws I think my examples are all fairly different from each other and none of them has anything to do with what Paul's on about only mention them because it's a favourite area for sloppy thinking, and maybe it's worth trying to get a bit of a handle on what he actually is saying. That's not easy either. Surely he's not attacking the idea of a Sabbath, is he? There's something wrong with Sabbath, as people are practicing it, evidently, but is he attacking the idea of a Sabbath? If God originally thought it was a good idea for people to get a rest every few days, it would be a bit odd if he changed his mind. So, isn't the Jewish law dead and gone after all then? Well, Paul, like Jesus, quotes from the first five books of the Old Testament rather a lot. And sometimes in connection with practical instruction. <coughs> no, the law has plenty to teach us about how to live. God hasn't really changed his mind. But it seems likely that the things Paul is most bothered about are ways of applying the Old Testament law to real life. Outward, observable behaviour that marks you out in a pagan city as having a Jewish identity. <coughs> now being Jewish doesn't just mean not eating pork or working on the Sabbath. It should include humility before God and caring for the poor and suffering. Both of those come in the Jewish law. On a very good day, those might even include their Gentile neighbours. That comes from the Jewish law as well. But of course, there's scope for both the humility and the self denial to be false. And Paul is clearly worried about that. It makes me think of the whole healthy eating movement for a parallel. In fact, I think there's an interesting parallel between healthy eating and spirituality. Uh, I am not knocking healthy eating, as you'll see in a minute. But there's plenty of scope in, healthy eat- in the whole health- healthy eating moment for false humility, self-righteousness, and self-indulgence masquerading as self-denial. I have to cook vegetarian meals every so often. And I have a favourite veggie recipe book wonderful recipes full of cheese and double cream. Oh, I read recently about a smoothie. You know, so many of you five a day in one go. A certain well-known coffeehouse chain Which might just happen to begin with the letter C, was shown to have been serving a large smoothie portion with the equivalent of 23 teaspoons of sugar in it. So healthy eating and spirituality have a fair amount in common. Then, and they both offer plenty of scope for nutters and con men. Con men is a bit of a sexist term. You can have con women as well, can't you? I'm not quite sure about con-men being such a serious issue in our immediate Christian setting but there's plenty of fruitcake in both spirituality and nutrition. Let's make the parallel practical. Our bodies are part of God's good creation, so we have a duty to eat healthily. No need to be cynical about that, but no need not too intense or fanatical either. I'm sure we've all come across both cases. Some things are reasonably obvious and well known. There's also quite a bit of uncertainty. And diet is one area where there's plenty of bent science offering false certainty, I'm assured. Even honest scientists can disagree or change their minds. You follow the nearest thing to a consensus. You keep a sense of proportion and apply self-control on the understanding that any rule you stick to is provisional and you may need to change your mind. What is crucial is good health, not this or that dogma. And Christian dogmas can take practical forms. What every Christian needs to do is... Go to this festival, that conference, sing this kind of song, use that kind of uh, prayer discipline, or this particular Bible study aid, or whatever. And what's crucial is not this or that dogma, but. Yeah, I think you probably know what comes next. How can I avoid giving you an empty slogan if I say, Jesus? I don't want it to be. Or Paul? has warned against false spirituality breaking the connection with the head of the body, i.e. Christ. So I'm minded to consider what Jesus says when he's asked what are the most important commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. And secondly, love your neighbour as yourself. And he says that sums up the law and the prophets. Oh, yes, the law again. But we can't go back to the Old Testament and follow every rule for living in a subsistence farming economy in a pre-scientific age with a single common culture. We, to quote the book of Revelation are a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language. One set of rules won't do for all. Loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbour as as ourselves is hardly a detailed programme but it's not an impossibly vague slogan either. Some of the bright ideas so the axes people grind may well be worth taking up and going with. The yardstick is how far they help us to love God and to love other people. And despite the impression we may have picked up from Paul, we can't do without man-made rules and procedures. But we always look at the man-made rules and procedures we've got and ask, does this or that practice give genuine love to God does our neighbour get maximum love this way and how can we tell how can we assess the value of what we actually do that's very practical I've stopped with a load of questions I did originally think I might open things up to discussion Made it work an awful lot better. I had a lot more voice, so I better not. But thank you for listening. Anyway, can we just? Shall I, shall I pray now? We're going to have some more singing, are we? Have a prayer to close to follow on from I think, what, what I've been talking about. Our Father, we ask that you will reveal to us what kinds of rules and procedures we actually follow whether we know we follow them or whether we're completely unaware of it and we ask that you will help us to expose them to your judgement to expose them to the questions of whether they help us love you and whether they help us love our neighbour And we're conscious; they're very much the kind of thing that we were often not aware of at all. So we pray for your illumination and guidance in ways that we would not be able to manage ourselves on our own in our own strength and wisdom. Amen.